0: Welcome to Tales from the Ruther, a podcast coming to you from the Walter P. Ruther Library at Wayne State University in the heart of Detroit, Michigan. I am Dan Galadner, your host, and alongside me on the Internet Connection is my co-host, Troy Eller-English. Hi, Troy.
1: Hey, Dan. How are you?
0: I'm just peachy keen. How are things over, you know, a mile away?
1: I'm gearing up to uh, teach kindergarten to my kids, so it's going to be awesome. (laughs)
0: Now you were you certified? Have you been certified for this?
1: I most certainly have not.
0: <laughs> You're gonna do and fine. Gonna I have fine.
1: received the preliminary virtual learning schedule and it is exhausting.
0: Yes. Yeah. Um listen, they're working hard, they're trying hard, but us parents, we're going a little getting a little crazy here. Anyway, on with the show. Um our friend Mike Elk from Payday Report. And for those who don't know Payday Report, go to paydayreport.com. He is one of the last of the labor, uh, labor reporters out there. He's doing an amazing job um, reporting from uh, all across the country. And he kept a great database um, website going about all the strikes that have been going on during our pandemic. Anyway, he writes about other things, and he's wonderful. But he wrote a nice piece uh, about a new book from John Nichols in The American Prospect, which the book is about Henry Wallace, the progressive vice president to FDR, who was eventually kicked off the ticket in favor of Truman by backdoor shenanigans. Now, why I read the article was that he starts out describing out how Wallace warned us about American fascists. It was, in the end of, it was at the end of July in Detroit, and Wallace was in town to give a speech about America Tomorrow, a common man economics plan in front of labor and community groups. He gave a warning that people were hoping to rip apart what FBR had done on the domestic front while everyone is looking at the war in international issues. The reason I bring this up is that on this episode, we talked with Solana Gr- Crum, who wrote an article in the Michigan Historical Review titled, When It Happened Here? Michigan and the Transnational Development of American Fascism, 1920-1945. to Crum is a recent graduate from the London School of Economics and Political Science in a dual degree program in international world history with Columbia University and with summa cum laude from Albion College with a BA in History and Political Science. And in this article, she lays out the evolution of American fascism and the ties with the German Nazis. She talks about the anti-Semitic writings of Henry Ford and how his writings influenced Hitler. And then takes us all the way to the end of World War II and how these American fascists evolved into the Red Scare groups of the 1950s and 60s, then evolved finally into the American Nazis of the 1970s. In her article, Crum focuses on American fascist communication with the German Nazi Party and hopes to one day expand her article from the transnational development of how fascists communicated and influenced each other in Japan and Italy as well. At this point, I was going to go on a little rant comparing a scene in the movie, The Best Years of Our Lives, where there was a fight scene in the the soda shop about fighting the wrong enemy. And the comparison of today's language is used by some people today. But I will not, because we were told many years ago not to get too political. So I leave it up to you folks. This is a timely, important conversation about how it did happen here and is happening here. thank you very much for joining Tales from the Ruther. We appreciate you taking the time to be with us. Um, how thank are things going with me. you in Michigan? They are good. Can't complain. Good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we can't complain. We're doing all right here. Um, so before we get into the heart of your research, could you please explain what is American fascism? Okay,
2: So I argue that American fascism was a hybrid and transnational ideology constructed by right-wing extremists in the U.S. and Europe that combine traditional American nativism, and I define that simply as anti-immigrant sentiment, and that's something that's existed in the United States since its founding. Um, So this combined with a newly emerging European fascism, which I define as espousing nationalism, anti-communism, superiority of race, authority of a strong leader, violent paramilitary methods, and reliance on patriotic rituals. And I argue that there were different categories of American fascists. You can't think of them just as a loud-mouthed dictator. Um, but in this country, they were industrialists, anti-communist, crusading clergymen, militarized secret societies, and immigrant veterans and explicitly fascist groups. And I think there have been a few different episodes of American fascism. One occurred between the 1920s and 1940s, concurrently with European fascism. And that's the one I focus on in my research and writing. Um, Another occurred, one in the 1960s and one in the 1990s, as neo-Nazi groups emerged. And then some argue that another one is developing right now with the alt-right and white supremacist groups proliferating throughout the United States. And uh, there's also a rise to power uh, of extreme right-wing and authoritarian politicians in several European countries, and I think Hungary is a prime example of that.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I, I see that in Hungary. You could say even uh, with Brazil, there is mm-hmm. this sense as well. Um, so let's go back to this um ideology that you are talking about. Um, specifically, the beginning of the early 1920s, you had your industrialist, mm-hmm. Henry Ford, writing uh, materials that began influencing those in Germany. Right. Then back again, right? It's yes. Kind of like turned over. Um Can you expand on what was happening in the U.S. in the 1920s, which developed of a fascist parties and uh, how this influence was going back and forth? Please.
2: Yeah. So we typically think of the the post-World War I era as a return to normalcy in the U.S., a retreat from the world stage and a breeding ground of isolationism. Um, In fact, I mean, it was that, but it, it was also during this period that both the European and American fascist movements were created. And in both cases, it was because of the establishment of a transnational network of ideological exchange between none other than Henry Ford and Adolf Hitler. Um, And this was helped along by an influx of German and Italian immigrants to the the United States. Um, But I say it all started with Henry Ford, who from 1920 to 1921 began publishing anti-Semitic articles in the Dearborn Independent, And this all stemmed from he had a bad experience with a loan and started blaming the Jewish people. (laughs) Hmm. Um, So these articles were compiled and released under the heading, The International Jew. So what really on the surface was a Ford Motor Company newsletter became combined into this publication all about the so-called Jewish plot of internationalism. Um, And he propagated what became the basic tenets of anti-Semitism, the first being the existence of the protocols of the elders of Zion, which was Mm -hmm. basically a fake document contending that there was a Jewish plot to take over the world by the elders of Zion, a secret Jewish organization. So by even suggesting that 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 existed, uh, which it did not, um, that's a classic anti-Semitic tactic. Um, right, right. He also suggested that a disproportionate number of Jews controlled government and finance and that a disproportionate number of them possessed the world's wealth. Um, and then finally, that they were responsible for starting and profiting from the First World War. I mean, Hitler's arguments are identical. Mm-hmm. Um, so these writings were translated and published in Germany in 1922 as Der International juda. Um, several Nazis read Ford's writings, some even meeting with Ford and his editor. And Hitler himself had several copies of the International Utah in his Munich office, uh, and a portrait of Ford hung above Hitler's desk. Mm. <laughs> and uh, Hitler was asked about that portrait by a
3: Detroit news reporter, and he replied that he, I regard Ford as my inspiration. Um, and then when he wrote Mein Kampf, Hitler, the the only American mentioned by name was Henry Ford. And
2: the context was that Ford was the only American free from Jewish influence. And Hitler also wrote a second book that was unpublished, but he expanded on his uh, plans to take over the world, basically. Mm -hmm. And in that book, um, he justified the entire Nazi movement as a mission to elevate Europe to the same level of of advancement as the United States. So basically Fordism for the world, but under the banner of National Socialism. And after seeing how Ford's writings forced Americans to confront the Jewish question in this country, Hitler sent a Nazi agent named Kurt Ludeka to the United States to raise funds to form what was called the National Socialist Party of Greater Germany in the United States. And he met with Ford, asked for funding, Ford declined, but in the following years Ford remained an idol by the Nazis. So for that first half of the 20s, the direction of that international exchange was coming was going west to east towards Germany. Mm-hmm. They were trying to build their movement in Germany. But I think this was reversed in the mid 1920s when Italian and German Americans began uh, establishing fascist groups in their new homeland. And this was spurred on by just heavy immigration by both those countries. Um, so over, you know, one and a half million Italians came to the U S between 1911 and 1930. Mm -hmm. Many of them settled in New York, um, formed Italian language newspapers, cultural clubs, and eventually fascist groups. Um, some Italian-American newspapers were explicitly pro-fascist, such as La Tribuna d'America in Detroit. And in 1921, they formed uh, something called the Fascist League of North America, and that was just a loose connection of fascist groups. A few years later, an Italian official authorized by the fascist government came to reorganize that loose connection of groups into a system of affiliations and dues paying members and they swore allegiance to both the American constitution and the fascist idea of society. So that was the first combination between European fascism and American democracy. And that was what fascism in America was founded on was that unique combination. Um, And then meanwhile, German immigration also soared after the first world war. 412,000 Germans, and many of them were veterans, and that's important, um, arrived between 21 and 1930. And they also formed cultural and social clubs, but some were more political. And those two types were Nazi groups and veterans organizations. So the the biggest explicitly Nazi group was the Teutonic National Socialist Association, known as the Teutonia. And that was founded in Chicago in 1924. Um, The branch in Detroit was one of the first to follow. And it claimed to be the oldest and largest Nazi group in America. Mm -hmm. Um, And its activities, like the Italian fascist groups, had this weird combination of patriotic American holiday celebrations, like Labor Day. But then they also had iconic Nazi rituals commemorating Hitler's birthday and the martyrdom of Horst Wessel, who's the poster child of the Nazi movement in Germany. And the leader of the Deutonia urged members to immerse themselves in all aspects of American citizenship without forgetting or renouncing their affiliation with the German fatherland. Mm. And they saw no contradiction in this. Uh, they They consider themselves to be quote, bearers of a worldview that is not bound by state borders. And then, so that was the biggest Nazi group. And then the most significant German veterans organization was Der Stahlhelm Bund der Front Soldaten, or the Steel Helmet Legion of Front Soldiers. And this was a German international organization um, headquartered in Magdeburg. But the Detroit branch, more than any other branch in the North American district, prioritized Americanism and Americanization and argued for independence from the German headquarters. And their activities consisted of marching alongside American veterans organizations on Memorial Day and Independence Day to celebrating George Washington's 200th birthday, Stalhelm represented that hybrid character of German-Americans and at this point it wasn't as explicitly Nazi as it would once would eventually become. So the 1920s saw this formation of the transnational ideological network that built both American fascism and German National Socialism.
0: What, what was this fascination with the American fascists with George Washington um, they, I'm sorry, I'm going off the script now. <laughs> but what great. was this fascination with um, American fascists with George Washington? They, they seemed to be celebrating his birthday or um, held George Washington to a large esteem rather than other founding fathers.
2: Well, I think that they had this preoccupation with founding, with the first and the first leader. And just like Hitler to them was the founding father of the Third Reich, George Washington, as the first president, was the founding father of
3: the United States, and um, I don't know why him uh, uh, other than it could be Thomas Jefferson, it could be James
2: Madison, but I believe it was just his title, president. Um, it's the fact that his name was the capital of the United States, if I had to guess
3: mm-hmm. um,
2: it's it's about the leader, so if there was one leader uh, of early America, it was George Washington. And also his military record couldn't
0: have hurt. (laughs) Right, right, right. It was just a curiosity that, because I kept seeing these pictures and you Mm -hmm. mentioned it. Um, So anyway, so we enter the 1930s, Great Depression uh rocks the world. Mm-hmm. Um it seems that in Europe, the European fascism Germany takes hold very quickly with redefining the economy and the and unemployment drops quickly. Right. But in America is slow and it, it seems to help develop this American fascism. Um, what kind of groups and individuals uh developed and 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 gained strength throughout the Great Depression?
2: Right. So Hitler comes to power and um, quickly has economic and political
3: success, which crystallized support for the Nazi parties already existing. Um, well, it crystallized
2: support for the German National Socialist Party in Germany among German American people in the U.S., um, and it it kind of led to this idea that there's a crisis of democracy and
3: a number of even, I call them native, but I mean Americans born in the United States, native Americans, um,
2: the extremists among them started looking to European fascist solutions for American problems. Uh, so the German American Nazi organizations that were formed in the 20s suddenly gained credibility and enthusiasm for their programs spread. And even though, this seemed like the ideal time to increase efforts to bring Nazism to America. Some Nazis remain cautious, and Kurt Ludeka was the biggest uh, cautious Nazi. He in April 1933, right after Hitler comes to power, he met with him and urged him to dissolve the American Nazi groups and replace hmm. them with so-called "native American Nazi groups, because he believed the only way national socialism would be successful in the U.S. as if it was a purely American ideology.
4: Hmm. That
2: foreign element would not succeed here, he thought. Um, and Hitler agreed to act to dissolve the American Nazi parties, but he and Ludeka agreed on a wider strategy of international international fascism beyond Germany. And I, I included this, I want to share this quote because it's just, you don't think of fascism as international, it's a nationalist movement. but this is uh, Hitler and Ludeka saying that we must create a world movement around national socialist ideas adapted in every country to the peculiar history, mentality, needs and problems of that country. A white international to set against the red international, each movement to be absolutely sovereign in its own country. So I think that's that sums up what yeah. they thought the Nazi party should look like in the U.S., and and even though Ludecker reached this agreement with Hitler and succeeded in having the American Nazi groups dissolved, his ideas were rejected by both German and American Nazi leaders. He was purged from the party, sent to a concentration camp, hmm. and eventually escaped to America. And I think that's because both American and German Nazis at the time still wanted to maintain this international ideological connection. They wanted to keep that in place for the time being. So. So even though they were dissolved in April 1933, um, a number of independent grassroots organizations formed in their wake. And one was called der Bund der Freunde des neuen Deutschlands, or the Bund of the Friends of the New Germany. And that's what they called Hitler's Germany, was the New Germany.
4: Mm
2: -hmm. Uh, So the Teutonia, which was dissolved by Hitler, was resurrected within this group Uh, It shared the same leaders, and in fact, it was founded by a Detroit Detonia member and Ford employee, um, along with a new member named Fritz Kuhn, another Ford employee, and he became the Detroit branch leader, and by 1936, assumed national leadership of the whole organization, and he renamed it the German-American Bund, and he became America's Fuhrer. We'll get to that later, I hope. (laughs)
4: But yeah,
2: yeah. Um, the, the Friends of the New Germany proclaimed 12 aims and purposes uh, to be for the mutual benefit of the U.S. and Germany. And they included the obligation to uphold the Constitution and laws of the U.S., to honor its flag and institutions, to promote goodwill between the U.S. and Germany, to defend Germany against defamation and to bring home to their fellow Americans New Germany's effort to always remember that in unity there is strength.
4: Mm-hmm.
2: So um, along with just you know, bolstering the existing Nazi groups, Hitler's rise to power led to the Nazification of the German-American organizations. So the Stahlhelm that I mentioned earlier began becoming more explicitly Nazi by cooperating more closely with the Nazi groups in America. So they held a joint event um, in February 1933 with the uh, the Friends of the New Germany and the Stahlhelm. And they incorporated Nazi symbols into their practices. So they had the swastika as its flag. Um, their boomed march was called swastika on the steel helmet. And at the same time though, it expanded the Stalham expanded their activities with American veterans organizations like the American Legion. And Mm -hmm. some events had this weird combination of Nazis, American Legion veterans and American and European diplomats and politicians. So one example was that they always held an annual George Washington birthday celebration. And this was attended by The German and Italian consuls to the U.S., Fritz Kuhn, Frank Murphy, who was the former mayor of Detroit and Mm. governor general of the Philippines at the time, and then numerous American Legion post commanders. And then they had a singing group uh, from the American Legion or the Friends of the New Germany both performed a mixture of American and German national songs, including our national anthem, Germany's national anthem stars and Stripes forever and the horse Wessel song <laughs>
4: mm,
2: so mm. this peculiar combination of German Nazi and American rituals were what I think are the roots of what became a united fascist front against the crisis of Jewish communism and but while they went through this Nazification process they sought to Americanize their message as well and diversify their base um, by expanding you know their collaboration with American-born Americans. Um, they held mass meetings with high-profile Native American anti-Semites and anti-communists, and they appealed to nativism, nationalism, um, but all the while advanced the traditional anti-Semitic belief in a in a Jewish-Bolshevik conspiracy, which was a staple of Nazi propaganda. So during this early time of the, the 1930s, the German-American National Socialist Movement simultaneously became explicitly Nazi, but also Americanized.
0: Wow, it is is kind of creepy, this this combination of American traditional democracy mixed in with the fascist Mm -hmm. Nazi um, propaganda. And how many people would join, would be participating in some of these events? How large were they?
2: Hundreds. They would have, um, yeah, they would have retreats to, Um, like a rural retreat and hundreds would, would be there. They'd have shooting practices and um, performances of German songs and American songs. It hmm. was, yeah, they were popular.
0: Interesting. So being popular, these, these bones is more better word buns buns mm-hmm. is, is created in the U S what other kind of things were developing alongside this, these, these American fascist movements. So what kind of individuals or other groups were percolating along with this?
2: Yeah, so a number of, of, and I hope you don't mind me calling them Native American, I don't mean first people, but uh, sure. Native American right-wing extremists, they emerged with political programs in response to the perceived crisis of democracy of the 30s, and one of these groups was a northern offshoot of the KKK called the Black Legion, and this was an armed nativist secret society formed in Ohio, and but very prevalent in Michigan. And like the KKK, Black Legion members were required to be white, Gentile Protestants. But in other significant ways, the Black Legion resembled the Nazi SA uh, mm-hmm. more than the KKK. So first, it was militarized in terms of organization. Um, it was organized according to military rank and included national and local death squads or strong-arm squads, similar to the to the SA. Um, second, it was... It emphasized violence in its tactics and was revolutionary in its goals. So members regularly held target practice, were involved in multiple murders, arsons, beatings, lynchings. Mm. They amassed arms and ammunition in preparation for taking over government agencies and arsenals. uh, And they had a national call-to-action word, lixto. (laughs) Mm. And their leader said that their code demanded that members Work unceasingly toward the extermination of the Jewish people and attempt to overthrow the present form of government, placing in its stead a dictatorship akin to that in Italy and Germany. Mm. Um, and finally, the Black Legion, the Black Legionnaires cooperated with German American Nazi groups and Native fascists. So, one example is hein- Heinrich Pickert, the Detroit police commissioner and secret Black Legion member. He attended uh, the 1935 and 1936 George Washington birthday celebrations organized by the Stahlhelm and the Friends of the New Germany. Um, so I say that the Black Legion was not just another traditional American nativist society, but it was a paramilitary organization committed to overthrowing the existing American state in favor of a fascist dictatorship. So I think it should be part of this United Fascist Front.
0: Yeah. Uh, how's fire spread with the Black Legion? Ohio, Michigan, other states?
2: Those were its two main states. I think it was a very northern, Midwestern phenomenon. It was not mm-hmm. uh, national. Okay. Um, so, but another Native American right wing extremist organization was not as revolutionary or violent, but it emerged at the same time. Um, and it became central to this United Fascist Front. Um, And this was the radio priest, Father Charles Coughlin, pastor of the Shrine of the Little Flower in Royal Oak. And he founded the National Union for Social Justice, which had a weekly magazine by the same name, Social Justice. And, you know, their principles were having a living wage for workers, nationalization of public resources, a national bank, um, wartime conscription of, of wealth and men. Um, and, but like the Nazi party, it described itself as a mass national workers party. And I think it should be classified as, as fascist because it's rhetoric was anti-liberal, anti-conservative, anti-communist. Um, Coughlin strayed from American ideals by, by he declaring that capitalism had become decadent, that, uh, rugged individualism had had its day Mm
3: -hmm. Uh, and in
2: his view communism was an existential threat and only the social justice program could uh, alleviate that threat. And he he himself defined fascism as a defense mechanism against communism. And eventually he developed into an apologist and outright admirer of European
4: fascists.
2: Right. Um, And, started applying the fascist ideology to the American situation. And I think his admiration for Hitler stemmed from his observation that Germany was solving the economic crisis more successfully than the U.S. So he wrote approvingly of Germany's handling of agriculture, um, lowering unemployment, hope among youth. Um, And he always followed up his statements by this call to action, saying, in the name of America, let us awake. And that was an appropriation of the Nazi slogan, "Deutschland Wacke, or Germany Awake. Um, so Coughlin urged Americans to learn from the practices of Nazi Germany. And in response, letters poured in to the editor of Social Justice, praising Coughlin for his courage to publish the truth about Nazi Germany. And one Social Justice reader from Wiesbaden wrote, America is awakened now and you deserve the greatest admiration for your glorious work. No man in American history, except for Ford, I say, has <laughs> stirred up the people as you and has opened the eyes of the world. So he came into the public eye during this time as well.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. There, there's a story that. Is folklore within the American Federation of Teachers, the one of their presidents, Albert Shanker, was um, was in New York as a kid. And every Sunday after Coughlin's uh, address, if he was outside, he would it, actually he would try to avoid to be outside. But if he was caught outside, he was in a mixed neighborhood, and uh, the Irish kids would come and try to beat him up for, you know, tall lanky Jewish kid.
4: You know? mm-hmm.
0: So it was widespread. His message, oh yeah, coast to coast. Mm-hmm. Um, so from 1930, you know, in your, in your article from 1938 to the time the U.S. enters World War II, uh, you, you state that American fascism becomes awakened. Mm -hmm. So what, what do you mean by, by becoming awakened?
3: So I mean that the, it was all hypothetical, really. The only real example of fascism was in Europe, but a world war, uh, at that point, only in, in Europe, America had not entered it. But mm-hmm. the threat of that world war uh, was
2: real motivation for fascists in, in this country to defend individualism against internationalism or um, to avoid getting sucked into what they thought was a British and Jewish conspiracy to drag the U.S. into the war.
3: So, really, it was this attempt to, you know, expose that conspiracy um, and defend the expansion of Nazi militarism. And during those three years of American neutrality,
2: the Native American fascists militarized their organizations. Mm. In response to that threat, but the German-American Nazis had to gradually retreat from U.S. activities because of all of the backlash against um, German, Italian, and Japanese people in this country at the time, even before we joined. Mm -hmm. So by by 1938, Coughlin, for example, advocated open militancy to combat Jewish communism, and he created the Christian Front, which I'm guessing is who... (laughs) your stories about who would go attacking uh
3: you know they they thought that we had to they had to create this revolution they tried to make force it to
2: happen so that they could openly attack jewish newspapers they they bombed them um yeah. and they thought that you know similar to the black legions preparation for a communist revolution the christian front organized a rifle
3: club um, all in the name of, is a, is a defense mechanism against red activities. Um, and
2: someone else emerged during this time who was a former ally of Coughlin's, and he was basically his Protestant equivalent, Gerald L.K. Smith. So he established his own radio program and political organization called the Committee of One Million, So, which was basically, I mean, so quintessentially fascist in its organization. So it was an authoritarian and personal leader. It emphasized the aesthetics of meetings and symbols. The exalted youth and its members were nationalist militants aiming to cleanse the country of subversive vermin. So all of these conform to a fascist style. Um, and his rhetoric was often identical to that of Coughlin and European fascists. It was very symbolic. Um, so one of his subjects was America Awake, and he used mm. dramatic language resembling Nazi anti-Semitic propaganda. He urged Americans to protect their righteous national character and, um, rather than succumb to parasitic tendencies, and said only a a new type of American, energized by spiritual force, um, could disinfect society <laughs> that was being destroyed by the vermin of subversive activity. What's what's odd though is that this period of American neutrality, so it's known for widespread isolationism. And we tend to think of an ostrich with its head in the sand. But Certainly. Coughlin Smith and Henry Ford ranked among the leading American isolationists. And they were not ignorant to European events. Um, instead they were fully aware of them and active commentators, and even apologists for the Axis powers. So they rallied around the slogan America First and were therefore militant nationalists more than they were isolationists or pacifists. Um, So they formed a committee. The National Committee of America First um, was founded in Chicago in September 1940. Henry Ford was a member, and Coughlin praised Ford's neutrality as a realistic recognition that Germany will be on top for years to come, he said. Hmm.
4: Hmm. So
2: both immigrant and Native American fascists saw the Second World War as a rising tide of internationalism that was increasingly threatening to expose and um, warrant investigations into their formation of a new ideology. So the German-American Bund attempted to counteract this by appealing More to Americanism. So, the most iconic example of this is the rally at Madison Square Garden um, in honor of George Washington on February 20th, 1939. And this was also a great example of the Bund's method of forging a united front with Native American fascists. So, this rally was called a mass demonstration for true Americanism and combined the typical Nazi practices of having stormtroopers beat a Jewish anti-Nazi demonstrator. They were saluting swastika flags. They were calling out for Gentile Americanism (laughs) and all under the gaze of this colossal portrait of George Washington. Um, So America's Fuhrer, Fritz Kuhn, addressed this 20,000 person crowd Mm -hmm. and he characterized the German-American Nazi movement as a purely American outgrowth of the Founding Fathers and called for a socially just white gentile ruled United States. Um, He wanted to outlaw the Communist Party. He wanted to cease the influx of of political refugees and return government to the policies of George Washington, namely aloofness from foreign entanglements. So these principles combine traditional American nativism with Coughlin social justice and J- Gerald L. K. Smith's America First programs. So, and then McCoon mentioned Coughlin by name. The crowd erupted in the loudest applause of the night. And they later distributed a pamphlet reprinting the addresses of um, that were given at the rally. And the writings by Coughlin were listed for sale alongside books by uh, Joseph Goebbels, the Nazi propaganda minister. So that just, that one night
4: <laughs> is just mm-hmm.
2: the, perfect example of what was going on and how serious they were taking it uh right before america entered the war
0: Hmm. so it was a definite threat there if you can pack in madison square garden for something like this um but here we go um the united states enters the war Mm -hmm. and things definitely have to shift for uh these american fascists but uh, as you point out in your paper this is interesting this is what kind of got me you know, really, an interesting thing is like they didn't really dissolve that quickly. They just morphed mm-hmm. into something else. Um, what happened to them?
2: Okay, so when America enters the war, the American fascists, both immigrant and native, have they're facing higher scrutiny because there are investigatory committees um, and organizations like the FBI looking into um, subversive fascist activity. That was the real threat at the time, rather than communism, as, they, as the fascists would have you believe. Um, so even before the war, Fritz Kuhn was indicted by the Dies Committee, the House Un-American Activities Committee. Um, but even so, he was maintaining his call for a united fascist front, claiming that you may call them fascists, but I call them patriotic organizations. <laughs>
4: mm-hmm. And
2: uh, one of these patriotic organizations was the KKK, who the German-American Bund had a joint meeting with um Ann Kuhn told the Dies committee that he cooperated with the with Coughlin's Christian Front and then for his part Coughlin met with the Chicago secretary of the Bund and was investigated for corresponding with an admitted agent of the German Reich and mm-hmm. for hiring someone to disseminate German propaganda so he had the Coughlin had a willingness to support this united fascist front in public word and private deed and that earned him the praise of German and Italian fascists in Europe. Um, but anti-fascists at home labeled him in social justice mouthpieces of foreign propaganda, which resulted in Coughlin repeatedly getting banned from broadcasting. And he kind of fizzled out following that. Um, but social justice and the, a Nazi newspaper compared the Jewish-led attack on Coughlin. Um, They compared that with the backlash against Ford's anti-Jewish writings in the 20s. And Gerald L.K. Smith sympathized with Coughlin, saying you're the victim of a vile, vicious, merciless persecution. Um, and, And Smith himself maintained active leadership of his committee of one million. He had the most endurance of all the Native American fascists. He formed alliances with anyone he thought opposed Jewish internationalism. And his allies included anti Semites, um, Gerald Winrod and uh, and Elizabeth Dilling, um, Henry Ford's general secretary, Ernest Liebold, who was said to have his own Gestapo within the Ford Motor Company. Um, Smith himself was employed by Ford, rooting out communists and labor unions. And among his personal papers are elaborate documents and lists um, giving the daily whereabouts of factory workers and suspected communists. But Smith himself, would associate himself with terrorist organizations like the Black Legion and the KKK. And all of his associations prove his membership in this united fascist front. And they were committed to militant nationalism, opposed to Jewish internationalism. Um, The one thing that did change was that three days following Pearl Harbor, the American First Committee was dissolved. But in 1943, Smith resurrected it. And founded the America First Party. He held a national convention for the party in Detroit in 1944, and the party nominated Whoel Smith for president.
4: <laughs> of course.
2: Um, and his platform was really odd. It vowed to, like before in his rhetoric, cleanse the nation internally, expand it externally. Um, it promised to take the power to control money out of the hands of. international bankers, which is code for Jews, and return it to Congress. It opposed admitting refugees. Um, It advocated for what they called the Abraham Lincoln plan of solving the Negro problem, which was a homeland in Africa. Mm. It called for Canada to merge with the U.S. (laughs) And above all, they complained that every American nationalist was called the fascist, despite the fact that every great American statesman of history was a nationalist. So long into the war, Smith maintained his fascist sentiment, but complained about being labeled as one. Um, But so above all, I think Smith's virulent anti-communism was the precursor of what would become McCarthyism in the 1950s. Um, So that's what was happening with the native um, American fascists. The, the, German-American Nazis were forced to retreat from their American political activities, and in some cases, they were deported back to Germany as foreign agents. So the same people who had founded the Teutonia and the Friends of the New Germany now founded a new organization called Camaraderie USA, and this was headquartered in Germany to assist uh, American Nazis returning to the Third Reich. What was left of it. Um, mm-hmm. So the weird thing was that if you proved your involvement in the Nazi movement in America, you had a better chance of success once returning to Germany. So many people think that the American activities were considered a nuisance by German Nazis. Just they were giving them bad press. Um, they were a failure. But instead. The evidence of such political work intrigued the Third Reich Germans and and increased their acceptance of them, uh, of the German-American Nazis returning. Hmm. So I'd say this retreat uh, wasn't their failure, but it was them transferring the control of uh, to the Native American fascists who had successfully awakened their mass base of support by this time.
0: Interesting. That's very interesting that they were held in such esteem when they returned to Germany.
2: Yeah. It was a big surprise to me too.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Um, So you could see how those in the United States, the American fascism in the United States States evolved into this McCarthyism, Mm -hmm. anti-communist, anti-liberalism in a way. Mm -hmm. Unions are all bad and that kind of thing. Do you, and you mentioned earlier that a neo-Nazi rise came in the sixties and it's De- definitely shown in the 1970s with the march in Detroit, and even uh, in a way, the Blues Brothers movie made comments about Illinois Nazis. You know, um, they were there, they were here. So, do, do do you still see that they never really went away, and that we have this underpinning of American fascism that kind of lurks uh, around, and just didn't dissolve? Well,
2: I think as long as we have a KKK, we have we have them. <laughs> yeah. um, but at different times they were more on the fringe than they were before. So I, I do say that ever since there was such a
3: thing as Nazism in the thirties, that they have existed here. Um, Mm -hmm. But at different times, the world events caused them to come out of the woodwork. And Mm -hmm. I think, I think we might be
2: in that moment now. Um, Not to the same extent as what I'm writing about. I think that,
3: the period I'm writing about, they were more in the mainstream than they ever were before or have been since. Um, but unfortunately, right now, not to get political, but we have a major party and a major political office sometimes defending them. That has never happened um, right. that I can see. So they operated very much outside of of the political establishment and despite you know smith's multiple runs for senator and president he
2: never gained power Mm -hmm. um he was just someone to listen to and
3: um you know vent anger (laughs) with uh but now it's a bit of a scarier time um And not just here, but around
0: the world. Oh, absolutely! You can see it all across the world. Mm -hmm. This kind of this kind of rhetoric. Uh, Okay. On a lighter note, then we we (laughs) always enjoy having researchers come and talk to us. But we're always curious of what kind of things you use at the Ruther Library. But also, you did a lot of different types of research. So, share with our audience the the kind of research you did at the Ruther, but also at the Bentley, and you went to Germany to look into the archives there.
2: Yeah, so I'll start with the Ruther. Um, There were two really valuable collections there um, regarding the Black Legion, mostly. So the Maurice Sugar collection and the Peter Amon collection. Mm -hmm. So Amon had researched and written about the Black Legion extensively, so his collection was basically just a time saver for me. (laughs) Um, (laughs) It had primary and secondary um, articles and sources. Um, But the Ruther also has the FBI files on Coughlin. And the Samuel Kelman collection, which has some other documents and articles dealing with Coughlin's fascist activities. Um, There were also some issues of Social Justice magazine there to look at. So Mm -hmm. for the Black Legion, which I didn't even hear of before ever, before starting this research, um, it was really helpful.
0: Um, Did anybody show you the cloak? We have the Black Legion cloak.
2: Well, I think it was on display.
0: um, Oh, wow. Down in the
2: in the main lobby Oh wow! actually the person who showed me it um was a student and worked in the archives at the time who I'd gone to Albion with so he's like oh yeah there's a cloak right here
4: (laughs) so that was interesting
2: (laughs) yeah (laughs) um yeah but yeah like you say I also did a lot of research at the Bentley Historical Library at U of M um that has Gerald L.K. Smith's personal papers and a lot of um issues of Coughlin's newspaper, Social Justice. So together with Bentley and Ruther, I was able to look at every single issue of Social Justice in paper, not digitized. (laughs) um, And then, yes, I did a little bit at the British Library in London. Um, They had the pamphlet that was distributed by the Bund um, from the rally with all the different speeches. Mm -hmm. And then I did do a lot of research. I spent a month in Germany at the federal archives in Koblenz and Berlin-Lichterfeld. Koblenz didn't, they had a lot of Nazi documents, but nothing really pertaining to the U.S. But the archives in Berlin had files on the German foreign office, the Stahlhelm, um, the Reich Chancellery, and then it
3: it is the main archives of the Nazi party. So it was a lot of fun to look at, um, you know, that, the German script um, the fracture and then uh,
2: I'm not as good of I I can't just read it and know exactly word for word what it's saying but I could skim it and know if it was valuable and I could take as many pictures as I wanted and translate them later so
0: Mm -hmm. that was a lot of fun that's very cool you did some great research you, well, thank you, you very got around, much. You got around. Um, <laughs> I, thank you so much for being on our podcast. I learned a lot. Um, I shared your article with my kids. I don't know if they read it, but you know, it's in their hands somewhere because I thought it timely, informative, and gave us a glimpse of what America was going through. Thank you so much. I appreciate it.
2: Thank you so much, and thank you for having me. <laughs>
1: Tales from the Ruther Library is a production of the Walter P. Ruther Library of Labor and Urban Affairs at Wayne State University, coming to you from the heart of the Cultural Center of Detroit, Michigan. The producers of Tales from the Ruther Library are Dan Glogner and Troy Eller-English. Special assistants from the Ruther Podcast Collective, including Bart Bilmer, Elizabeth Clemens, Megan Courtney, and Paul Neering. Of course, this podcast could not be done without the research and the support of the entire Ruther Library staff. To learn more about the Ruther Library, or if you have any questions, please visit our website at www.ruther.wayne.edu. Thanks for listening. Say goodbye, Dan.
0: Goodbye, Dan. He warned us that there were powerful groups with lots of money, put money... Into power of people and put people, general people less. Let me start that over. Okay, Troy? I'm sorry. Okay. (laughs) She talks about this anti-Semitic writings of Henry Ford and how his writing influenced Hitler in the end of and and I did not do well on this. I thought I did a very good job. Never mind. You know, half the time she going, like, I didn't sign up for this crap.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I'm not getting paid enough for this. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. (laughs)